0: Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Leiba, and producer Elvin Freitas bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing, Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team at MDT is absolutely amazing, whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. We do like to have a little bit of fun along the way. Always with me, my compadre, the my ride or die as we go through the EdUp Experience, Liz, the phenom. How are you today?
1: I love that you call me your ride or die. I, I that's you. Now you got to you can't say Liz anymore. Now you just gonna have to say my ride or die.
0: Well, you know, I, I will tell you when you you know on these episodes when you're not available and I have to do it myself. I'm like, oh, God,
1: you get sad, don't you? you know, who
0: am I going to give all this stuff to? Like, who am oh. I going to, you know, I have nobody there to go. Hey, Liz. Oh. What's you know, so, you know, it, it is it is easier to do these with you um, because Good. also you make significant fun of me which
1: I love if, making you know, fun of you. It's like my yes. favorite thing to do. So. I, have, I have also yeah.
0: realized that about you, that it is your favorite <laughs> thing to do. Um, and it c- is continuous, which I guess I appreciate, because if, yeah, you can't of course. Make fun, if you can't take a little bit of stuff from somebody, then you're Yeah,
1: being- there you go. There you go.
0: Well, uh, our guest today has given you two compliments so far. Back to back back to back compliments, yeah. me, me, none. Um, so we're yeah. going to have to reconcile that before we eventually do our, I'm sure uh,
1: somewhere toward the end. She'll throw you a little compliment, a little backhanded compliment. Well, the I, I
0: just like to point that out in the scoring system that we have with all of our guests that Liz is sitting somewhere around 100,000 compliments and I've gotten nine, I think. And there, oh, all-
1: I was going to say three. Okay. Nine. Uh, yeah. Nine, no, no, no I good.
0: think there were there were nine yeah. from the same person. It was in our original episode with Elvin Freitas where he complimented me twice and that. that so that's the majority of where they come from. And Anyway, on to the more serious Anywho, <laughs> uh, all, uh, Amazing guest for you guys today. Uh, we've been um, uh, talking for a long time, trying to track her down. She's been very, very busy. Ooh. Her name is Dr. Melody Rose, and she is Chancellor of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Melody, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been fun already.
0: I, I will tell you, I literally sat here looking at this piece of paper Trying to introduce you, and the only thing that is staring at me in the face is how to say Nevada the right way. Um, can you enlighten our audience about your transition to the state and how to say it correctly? And because I'm in, Nevada, I say Nevada, and but you did, informed- you
1: did well. You said Nevada. Did you so hear me almost trip? I, I heard <laughs> you, but you recovered. You recovered. You stumbled, and then you like uh, uh, and you straightened up. So that was yeah. good. good. So, job.
0: Melody, what's the what's the correct pronunciation?
2: The Silver State goes by Nevada. Nevada. And I arrived in Nevada in August of last year, of course, in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we have been hitting the ground running ever since and um, moving now through our legislative session and beginning to try to imagine a post COVID world and what that will look like for our students, staff and faculty.
0: You know, I, I want to ask you because I found this article about you. Um, what am I reading here? It's in the AP. I think it was the Las Vegas Review Journal. You know, and you're coming on board and, and you're looking at, you know, the, the entire state system. And you say that um, really your priority set included transparency, trust, and inclusion. Why specific, you know, so I get my first question is why that set of words um, talk about that a little bit and how you've been able to to move forward and accomplish those goals of transparency, trust, and inclusion.
2: Oh, well, thank you for for asking. And those are a value set that are close to my heart, and I think I have lived those values in previous roles. And I think they're especially important and relevant right now. And um, just take them one at a time. I, I think the transparency issue, is so vital to the national higher education conversation, right? There's a lot of um, mystery about our industry. That notion that we're ivory tower and somehow distant from our communities is in part of uh, a critique around transparency. And so we've been working very, very hard on this subject since my arrival. And I'll I'll just give you one quick example. Um, My staff, uh, wonderful staff based in Reno and Las Vegas um, have been working internally on a project to talk about our values and to evaluate how we have been living up to those values. And so when my staff did basically uh, contributed to a climate survey the first week of my arrival, I asked HR to conduct a climate survey to understand how our, our staff are doing and, and how they feel they're performing. And we got the results. Uh, as with any organization, in some places we're effective, in other places we have work to do. And we've been transparent in sharing those data with our board and with our staff and with the public, because I think transparency builds trust, which gets me to that next value set. If we're open and honest about the things where we need to improve, I I think folks are more likely to trust. And as you well know, um, I'm a political scientist and I study these things for a living. And our nation is at a low point in terms of trusting its institutions trusting its political institutions, trusting its social institutions, and in higher education, we want to be an industry that has high levels of trust and understanding. So I've been working through that as well. Again, using those same practices and holding ourselves accountable. Uh, I'll give you an example there. We, um, We are working through adding some accountability measures to our strategic plan. And I've been sharing those with legislators as we've been moving through this session. And I think they appreciate that we are stepping up to accountability and that builds trust too. And inclusion, I mean, holy cow. Uh, I think we all have to get on the inclusion bandwagon. Uh, Our nation is demanding it, our nation deserves it, and uh, one of the things that thrills me about being in the state of Nevada uh, is that it is an incredibly rich, diverse community of learners, and we need to make sure that not only are we inviting all Nevadans to be part of higher education, but when they come through our doors, uh, that they feel full participation in that experience and feel fully welcomed. And having been a first generation college student myself, very attentive to that need to make sure that every student, whatever their background, whatever their preparation level is met with a sense of welcome and belonging. And um, called to work on that and happy to be doing so in a state like ours that basically looks like the future of America.
0: You know, uh, so there's so much packed into your answer there on that, that question. And I want to just pick out something because you talked about going back to transparency, you, you really transitioned into a, a massive role as a chancellor over a state system. When you sat back on your first day or bunch of days, and you said, this is really one area that I've identified that can really improve things in this state system. Is it the accountability piece, the accountability measures, I'm kind of starting, going where you started and where you kind of finished with accountability and, and data. Was there data sharing? Is there data sharing? I mean, I think this is a fascinating piece because, you know, you're over a large system. Is everybody communicating the way they should in the best interest of the student? Or is that something that you have to work to change?
2: Well, that's a that's a great question. And and um, as I'm coming to learn the culture of the state, one of the Things that has been very apparent to me is like many states, there is something of a geographical divide here. And there's a bit of a North versus South uh, culture that has built up over many, many years. And when you're the newcomer, of course, stepping into that decades long um, tension, you, you kind of scratch your head and say, well, gosh, guys, you know, we're all one university system, and I, I want everyone to succeed within this system. And one of the things that I think uh, is critical to overcoming that north-south tension in the state is bringing data to the conversation. So there are some built-up perceptions, I think, very long-standing with uh, some historical roots, and some, some concerns over, you know, is the funding formula equitable from the North to the South? And so I come into the conversation as a scholar and I say, well, gosh, um, you know, I get that this is an emotional issue, but let's look at the data. So I'm trying to drive a data-driven conversation with every stakeholder group and North and South. And so that we can come together. And I think that if we're having conversations as a community, looking at the same facts and agreeing on the facts, then we can come together for accountability and any change that needs to be made for better performance. So I'm very much focused on this notion of driving decisions with two things in mind. One is student interests and centering the student experience in every business decision that we make. And two, focusing on metrics, targets, and data. Because as the old business adage goes, if it's not measured, it's not managed. And so I think that that focus on outcomes and performance creates transparency, creates trust. And if you get everybody to the table, it's also creating inclusion.
0: Liz, I want to ask one more. But I, I know you—it's your turn. But I gotta—I have to no, ask. go
2: ahead. You're good. It,
0: the the um—that's actually pretty fascinating. The whole north and south thing. That's something that I I wouldn't have ever known. Um, do do you think that the the leaders at the schools under the system understand? Well, let me ask it this way—a a different way. Competition is increased. Um everybody's offering online programs. You could be in any state and have thought about a school in that state before. And now there's a school from another state that creates online programs, for example, that wasn't accessible to you before, but maybe is now. And do you think that the leaders within the state system um, it understand that competition is elevated outside of the state? Um, and, and if so, uh, is there uh, a programs or initiatives that are trying to keep the students in the state, right? In other words, you have a student down the street, you want them to go to a state school in, the, in Nevada, right? You don't right. want them to go off to California or New York, uh, for example. So is there a recognition, a competition and any alignment to try to, to, try to uh, keep, keep uh, students at home?
2: Well, there certainly is. And I, I would say not not only am I new to the Nevada system of higher education, but we have several new presidents. And so they bring fresh eyes and fresh perspective to all of these conversations too. Uh, one of the first things I did in the fall was to hold an all day presidents retreat, just me and the presidents, so that we could talk through some of these issues and really build ourselves as a team. And what I heard there from all of them is, yes, they're aware, of course, they're living this competition in a, in a really challenging environment because, as we all know, uh, national uh, demographics and, and slowing birth rates are telling us that there will be fewer college-bound students uh, in the near to medium term. And so that creates by itself more competition Uh, and then you add in the online capacity and that uh, heightens that competition. So the conversation we are having is how do we come together so that we're facing that competition through in-state collaboration. And I think what you will see in the coming years is a real focus on bringing ourselves, knitting ourselves more closely together for the betterment of the student experience. So for example, uh, a few years ago, uh, there were disparate uh, police services for our various campuses. Today, there are two police departments, one for the Southern institutions, one for the Northern institutions. And that has been in place long enough to know that the services that we are delivering to students, staff, and faculty are enhanced. Uh, They're doing wonderful work in community policing, serving our campuses better, and we are saving millions of dollars at the same time. So I think it's incumbent upon us to face that competitive marketplace through enhanced collaboration. And you're gonna see more of that out of our institutions in Nevada.
0: Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash
2: edup.
1: I love everything that you said because I think it is a perspective of really putting students first and centering the student in the decision-making. What's going to be best for the students? How can we best serve the students' needs? How can we be aware of uh, the demographic that we serve? And I guess I wanted to talk about what you said in terms of your your student body and how it represents um, what the country is going to look like. And I always think about this because of uh, with higher education and this enrollment cliff that we've all been talking about with less students of college age and everything that led up to that, uh, that enrollment cliff, now we're dealing with a, a demographic change throughout the country where over the next decade or two, we are going to see more students, um, Black students, um, Latin Latinx students, students that are biracial all these different um, types of students that we need to understand how to serve. What are some unique perspectives you have from your state being coming from such a, a diverse cultural mix? And what are some things that we need to do better uh, across the country so that we can better serve those needs of the students? Like you said, the first generation students that have particular needs and uh, students that are just coming from culturally for coming from circumstances that may not be what uh, some of the sector is necessarily used to serving that type of student?
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you, that's a great question. And I, it's one of the reasons I came to take this job is the population of students that we serve here. Um, I was born in LA. And so there's a lot around the Southern Nevada, Um, culture and community in particular that feels like home to me and it was one of the things that attracted me to the job is the opportunity to tackle these issues of diversity equity and inclusion in a way that surfaces solutions that can be useful to the rest of the state. I would like to think that the state of Nevada can be a model uh, to the rest of the nation as the demographics continue to shift and what I would say is that we are doing a tremendous job, in my view, on the the D of the DEI. So our institutions became majority minority student in about five years ago. So today we have more students of color across the NCU institutions uh, than than white students, and that that line was crossed about five years ago. And so I think we are doing a good job at bringing students into our institutions who look like the Nevada population. And that's a great uh, great achievement, um, but we can't rest there. Because when we look at the data, we also know that those students of color, underrepresented students, first generation students in particular, Um, are not completing their degrees in the same numbers as their white peers and that's a problem that we have to face. It's something that we need to delve into and understand better if we're going to really scaffold those students in the way that they need us to. And so I will say there are some really effective programs at the campus level, particularly at the College of Southern Nevada, at UNLV, at Western Nevada College. I mean, these are campuses that have some pretty laser focused initiatives that are showing results. The challenge there is that those initiatives um, need to be scaled uh, system-wide. We need to take what is working and invest in it system-wide. And of course, that's a resource issue that, that we will be addressing. But the number one thing I think we need to tackle to make sure that we are closing the opportunity gap, the completion gap that we see in our numbers is to invest in faculty and staff of color. So we've done a great job uh, at the level of the presidents. I have one of the most diverse teams of presidents in the nation. Uh, Our presidents look like our students. And I think that's incredibly impactful uh, for young people on our campuses. But we need to have that same representation reflected in the classroom, the same representation showing up with our advisors in all of the academic and student affairs professionals. And so I hope to be working with the presidents um, very intentionally around attracting, supporting, and retaining faculty and staff of color. Because I think when our students know that if if they can see it, they can be it. And we owe it to our students to reflect their experience across our staffing.
1: I so agree with that. And I have a question for you related to that, because I think you hit the nail on the head. How do we create that intentionality? You talked about the idea of so many of the presidents reflecting the students. But it seems as though, and Joe can attest to this, because we're trying to interview presidents from across the country and and leaders from across the country. It's just not enough representation there. How do we as a sector just become more intentional in ensuring that that's actually happening? Uh, We we, we want it to happen, we're saying we want it to happen, but what do we do to actually get there? I guess would be my question.
2: Yeah, well, I I think that's a really important question is kind of the perennial question, right? Because we know that in certain disciplines um the representation of women and people of color is still lacking Uh, so in some ways we have to think upstream about growing our own we have to think about what are we doing in our masters and phd programs to grow those populations of professionals to invest in them so, when it's time for us to hire faculty and staff, we're, we're actually looking at a growing pipeline uh, that is more representative of America. And I, I think we are working on that um, in every way that we can. I would also say that sometimes in the hiring process, in my experience, sometimes little things matter. And I'll give you. I'll give you a very simple example, and I don't mean to suggest that these things are panaceas, but I think it suggests that we need to be open-minded about the way that we search uh, for professionals of color. And I would argue that first of all, we have to take seriously what it means to search for new leaders. And I, I know it sounds trite, but we have to remember that search is a verb And that when we just open up an opportunity and kind of cast it wide and say, y'all come, um, we're not doing our best in going to the places where professionals of color are and actively recruiting them and actively inviting them to be part of our organization. So part of this is a culture shift that we have a responsibility to go find those folks uh, and to, be assertive in saying we want you to be part of our of our and she family. And I'll give you again I'll give you just one quick example from way back in the day, uh, when I was a department chair. In the political science department, and uh, at that time, I think I was probably the only woman on the faculty of about 10. There were no uh, professionals of color on the faculty in political science. And I had responsibility one year to guide a search process. And we made some very clear changes in where we were placing our ads, in where we were making phone calls to actively invite professionals to apply for the position. And I will never forget uh, having a conversation uh, when it came to inviting finalists. Uh, we, We were inviting three finalists all of them were women of color because we had done the work to go out and find them. And when we were making the schedule for their visit to Portland, uh, which is a very white city, um, typically, you know, the faculty would decide where to take these uh, candidates out to dinner. And I said, you know, I'd like to try this differently. I'd like to ask the candidates what part of town would you like to see? What kind of food do you enjoy? Are there cultural activities you would like to experience while you're in our city? And we flipped the whole experience on its head by inviting the candidates to tell us what they needed to experience in our city in order to make a good decision about the opportunity. And we ended up hiring um, our first, to that at that point, our first female of color political scientist. And I think it had to do with the change in the way we approached candidates uh, with greater humility and interest and a genuine desire to let them have the experience they needed to have to make an informed decision. So sometimes it's those little things. um, And I intend to implement that way of thinking in what we're doing for hiring.
1: I'm so glad you shared that. I'm going to pass it back to Joe, but I don't want that moment, the impact of that moment to go unstated that what you said, that anecdote that you provided is so key when across the country, we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, sometimes the inclusion and the belonging piece, that part gets kind of lost in the shuffle. We're talking about diversity. We're talking about equity. But then the candidate comes on board, whether it's a corporate environment or a higher ed, and they don't feel welcome, or they feel like they're not visible. So the fact that you did that—it's it, 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 like you said—it's like a small gesture, but that can mean so much to a person feeling like, okay, wow, they didn't just take it for granted mm-hmm. and just take me to alehouse house or wherever. You know what I mean? Or long John, <laughs> long, long or steakhouse. It was like you actually thought. I mean, you know, give the person that opportunity to determine just one small thing and it, it can make a huge difference. So I'm so glad that you shared that Dr. Rose because I, I feel like that's a very important point that you made there with that analogy. Thank
0: you. Me- Melody, I want to shift just a little bit to the student conversation and, and ask you a general question. How are students feeling? I mean, you're not, vaccinations are going on. Everybody's getting vaccinated as fast as possible. Students that were on campus before were online, could be coming back, maybe coming back. Um, uh, how are what's the general sense about what students want and how they're feeling right now in the uh, in the Nevada system? I swear every time I'm saying it that way because I have been brought up to say Nevada a very different way. I feel like my chin's hitting the ground. Like you're doing I really good. have to move Don't my worry, I really have to move my time. face in a different way in an natural good, way to do it.
1: Good job. But
0: yeah, so. I, <laughs> let me thank you, thank you liz you're you welcome.
2: I'm, I'm trying to inspire you in the
0: nevada system how, yes. how are students feeling thank
2: you thank you you you're nailing it that's perfect pronunciation thank you um i would say they are feeling pretty anxious i i think we have to own the fact that this last year has taken an incredible toll on on all of us students staff and faculty um but your question is specifically about students. And, and I, I have the great privilege of meeting on a monthly basis with uh, all of our student body presidents. And that's one of my main touch points for getting feedback. And of course, when I can be on campuses, I like to meet with students too, but I, I haven't had as much of that, of course, as I would wish. But students have been clear with us that they are struggling that their mental health has been shaken and i think that we have to also acknowledge that the pandemic has created tremendous uncertainty around how are my classes going to be delivered can i learn in this platform I think about some of our students uh, and this is true in rural areas and in urban areas who don't have the device they need. Or don't have sufficient broadband capacity at their home, or they just share a bedroom with two siblings and they can't get quiet time to do their work so we've got all that happening. But in addition, let's also not forget these are often students who have. Parents, grandparents, family members who are at risk, who have some of them lost family members. So th- then we add in some of the pre existing uh, sources of anxiety, right? Continued racial disparity and institutionalized racism, the concerns, kind of existential concerns about our environment. So I don't. I don't wanna be doomsday here, but I wanna be realistic about the fact that our students are telling us that they need more support with mental their mental health. And so I was very, very pleased um, that they were candid with me about that and to have had the opportunity in January, so just not long ago, six weeks ago, to launch a system-wide mental health task force to address these concerns head on. And they have been meeting I think they've met four times since we launched. The task force itself is made up of subject matter experts from all of our campuses, students, staff, and faculty who are surfacing best practices for mental health that are already in place that the system can accelerate, just you know, put our foot on, on the gas pedal or scale to other campuses and also to identify perhaps some new initiatives that will require investment. Because it's, it's my firm belief that if we don't tackle this issue of the mental health and well being of our students, then the rest of our goals don't really matter. So we have a responsibility to meet students where they are. And I think the mental health task force is, is gonna help with that. And, and I have to say, just quickly um, on a personal note, my two youngest children are currently in college in, a, in another state. And so I, as a mom, I hear some of the strain and some of the worry uh, and some of the uh, challenge uh, that, that my own kiddos are having. And so it's, it's helpful to me to be on the consumer side of all of this too, because I, I hear it around the Thanksgiving table. You know, I hear it at Christmas um, and it's real. We, we have a responsibility to meet students where they are and support them through this.
0: Yeah, what a what a, I mean, having the mom insight and, and hearing it firsthand certainly would help your, the way you address those concerns, right? I mean, that's that's the inside information that I think is so important. But along those same lines, um, one of the things that Liz and I brought up on the podcast a lot with other leaders is, are the students disappearing because of everything that you just mentioned? Are there people, I'm um, students, going, you know what? This just isn't what I thought. And I'm not going to you know, do higher education anymore. I'm not going to go get my degree. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do something different. The big worry. I think for higher education in general is, can we get the students back? The ones that have fallen through the cracks that have disappeared, uh, you know, because of all of the reasons, again, you have to go through all of them. And I don't want to repeat all of them. Like you mentioned, cause there are so many, are we, are we in, in the system that you're leading? Are, is there a concern around that, like getting these students back? And, and how do you go about doing that and reengaging them for to, to come back? whatever comeback looks like?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have lost some students, and I would say it's not even, that that loss is not even across our institutions. And as we're all reading, the data coming in around projections for fall and FAFSA completion and all those early markers that used to be great predictors of our fall enrollment. Uh, As you know, we're, we're shooting blind a little bit here because this is an unprecedented experience. And so the challenges around predicting who's gonna come back, how are they gonna come back, how do we find them to come back Um, Yeah, it's it's, it's just a changed game. And so we've got campuses working, first of all, really around the clock to make sure that our faculty and staff have the professional development they need to be operating really well, exceptionally well in the current environment, but at the same time doing everything we can to prepare to have more face-to-face classes in the fall. Because that is certainly what the industry is hearing, that you know, students, oh, go no, ahead.
0: No, no, please finish.
2: Well, the students are missing that experience, right? They're, they're missing the social interaction. They're missing the faculty face-to-face interaction. And so there's, there's definitely an intention on our campuses to have more classes in person in the fall and that we hope that that will encourage some of our students to return. I think the challenge here, which is embedded in your question is that, and I'm well, I'm, I'm talking about this frequently right now because we're um, presenting our budgets in the Capitol, that not only have we had additional expenditures because of COVID to prepare our campuses, to go online, all of that, but we've had revenue loss from housing, from student, uh, student, uh, athletics to dining hall and some erosion of of our um, tuition fees. So we are working at full tilt to get students back. My biggest worry, and I think this is reflected nationally in the conversation and in the data, is that the students who have fallen off are the most vulnerable they're the ones who need us the most in order to scaffold them back into the system uh, and get them geared back up. And that's we've made such progress with underrepresented and first-generation students, and that's where I have the most anxiety.
0: I think you're right on. I know you'd agree, Liz. I mean, it's like so much work had to be done in the first place in higher education to to go out and. Uh, create access for underrepresented populations, lower economic quartile, and then to lose those students to to circumstances that were hard to overcome in the first place. Doing it a second time seems really hard, and so yeah. I, you know, I mean, it's just hard, It's the hard work of higher ed that we have to be really mindful of and and intentional with how we go about reengaging those populations. And you know, to your point, the other thing that I've noticed. And I don't know if you have, Melody, is like this this, um, unpredictable decision making where Mm -hmm. one moment you've got a student that seems ready to go to school or ready to come back to school. And then the next day or two days later, it's a complete flip around because someone in their family got sick or... Is some financial maybe a parent lost a job or a spouse lost a job or whatever whatever age they are whether they're traditional or adult students, and it's it's like that that predictor that you talked about. Even if you can get to the point where you think you can predict, sometimes there's just spot on decisions of of reversal type decisions that make it almost impossible to figure out what's going on in in the minds of students and in their lives today.
2: Yep. I think that's exactly right. And of course, those are tragic outcomes, because one of the things that concerns me the most is that population that entered our institutions, took on some debt to do so, and left with no degree. And that is the absolute worst place for folks to end up. And so I think we have to be looking this fall. I think we have to be looking very carefully at the patterns, at the data, and then making data driven strategic decisions about how to address whatever shows up in the data. So, you know, one of the things that I used to see as a younger administrator back in Oregon is the propensity of students to walk away from their degree when they're within like 20 credits of completion. I mean, that was kind of a stunning thing for me to learn. I had always had the assumption that we lose students between first and second year. And of course we do lose some, but the number of students we can lose toward the end of the journey, just before they walk across that dais is is stunning to me and it's one of the things that i'm eager to have our campuses take a look at because what i've certainly learned in in past roles is that you can have you know a a parking ticket a library fine a small unpaid bill of various kind really be the tipping point for that student who is so close and who's experiencing a variety of life challenges And so sometimes we have to get into the data and get really strategic about where can we help students uh, who are at the end of their degree seeking experience make sure that they get across the finish line and experience all of the benefits um, educationally, personally, financially uh, of that degree. And so it's gonna be incumbent upon us to really dig into these details and pivot our strategies based on what we uncover.
0: It's it, I, I and I'll pass it back to Liz in just a second, but I it's so interesting you say that and and write on that it's that one bill. It doesn't matter yeah. what it is, and it doesn't matter how much it's for. It could be for five dollars, it, it could be for five hundred thousand dollars, it doesn't matter. The the point is is that that, that student has been doubting whether they can finish it off for a long time before they get that turning point bill, the one bill, that one financial charge that makes them go, okay, that's it. Forget it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's important to remember. I think for all of us in higher ed that we always look at the decision that's made at the point, that it's made, and it's always before that. It's always a, a set of circumstances that lead up to that decision that are the real hard work of retention. And I really appreciate that you said that, Melody, because I think that's totally right. And I do want to ask you d- to that to that point, as you're looking at it, these problems that we've discussed and, and challenges all mounting up, and specifically about the financial challenges, a little bit of loss in revenue or increase in expense. It does. A, a make a case for model change, or at least efficiencies within the current models? How closely are you looking at operational uh, efficiency, um, potential model change for the future for to, to service students in the state?
2: Great question. And we're looking at it very, very closely, actually. The Board of Regents established a fiscal sustainability an ad hoc fiscal sustainability committee to dive into some of these very issues, and you know these are oftentimes uncomfortable conversations. As you know, um, no nobody likes to have their cheese moved, uh, and we as humans are often adverse to change. And I think. You know, it's a, it's a somewhat fair critique of higher education that we are very tradition bound. And so it, it really requires a lot of care and uh, conversation among stakeholders to have these bold conversations about how do we change, how do we need to change? And so we, we are fortunate to have a board that recognized the need for those conversations. Uh, We are having them at a a very diverse uh, stakeholder level. And we're looking at a whole range of considerations, everything from, you know, the back office consolidations, you know, contracting, purchasing, uh, business office stuff. Uh, Some of that, of course, as we know, is the least controversial of, of these model conversations um but we also have to be i think looking at student behavior data to help guide us in these discussions so what are we need to be asking ourselves what are students telling us with their behavior Uh, that students vote with their feet and we need to be looking uh, at what they are doing and reading those tea leaves to be guided to the right outcomes and I, I think we need to be not afraid to follow what students by their behavior are telling us they need.
1: Liz. I just think that's so important and so salient to how to improve outcomes, especially for students that are coming from backgrounds that typically where they've been marginalized, uh, they are experiencing financial challenges. They're coming from, you um, maybe uh, in, th- in terms of K through 12, they haven't had the same level of preparation because I found that that exactly, exactly what happened to me. I was like maybe a semester away from graduating. I literally almost didn't graduate because I had an algebra class. I could not pass for the life of me. And it seems counterintuitive. It's like, well, yeah, you're almost done. So you would just get the class done and you would just graduate. But I think that that mind frame shift that you talked about is so important, because I think sometimes when you're coming from a totally different perspective, or you're coming from a a totally different upbringing or mind frame, that you're not going to necessarily understand the challenges that the first generation student has, or that a student is coming from um, a marginalized background has. So I'm so glad that you addressed that, because I think that one thing that you you said that really, I, I wrote it down as soon as you said it, you talked about the opportunity gap versus, and, and I thought about that versus the achievement gap. How sometimes we expect, when we talk about the achievement gap, it's almost as though, well, the students are not getting to where they need to be rather than looking at what we need to do to to make sure that we create opportunity for the students. So kind of putting the onus on ourselves. Do you think higher education just from the communities that you serve and, and some of the what you've uh, observed in not only your community there, but also previously, how can we better connect with the community at large? Like, How can we look at that K through 12 pipeline and make sure that we're giving that smooth transition, especially for those uh, those students that are coming from maybe underserved uh, public schools and, and try to kind of connect the dots with some of these places where we may be losing our students.
2: It's a great question. I really appreciate it. Um, the first friend I made in Nevada is the state superintendent of public instruction. And I'm so grateful to her openness and her leadership and her willingness to partner with me because I firmly believe that K through 12's success is our success, right? We, we're not gonna get more students or better prepared students without supporting our K through 12 system. We're integrally tied. And um, as a kid who um, moved through a lot of schools as a kid, um, I went to three high schools in two different states. I understand personally how much that foundational experience matters when you get dropped off at college or whether you get dropped off at college. And so, Superintendent Ebert and I uh, are working on two strategic initiatives that I think demonstrate how vital it is to be working as a, as a team. So one of those is around dual credit programming. And you, your listenership, of course, knows that we're talking about students who are earning college credits while they're still in high school. Uh, dual credit happens currently in Nevada, but it doesn't happen consistently or at the same price across zip codes. And the superintendent and I agreed that that's unacceptable, that we need to be reaching in to communities of color, uh, lower income communities where students need that opportunity most and making sure that we are providing it at a price point that they can uh, find approachable. So we're working on that together. We have a current task force underway that's gonna present results of their study and recommendations to the two of us here later in the spring. And at the same time, we are now looking, turning our attention to the real challenge Nevada has historically had in teacher preparation. So we are, as a higher education system, not producing anywhere near as many teachers as Nevada needs in its K through 12 system every single year. And we, we have um, several wonderful teacher preparation programs, but here too, uh, the superintendent and I are gonna bring together the subject matter experts to understand how can we grow that teacher pipeline? So how can we encourage fifth graders, eighth graders, 10th graders to be teachers? and then provide them with the programming that they need when they come into higher education. And so that we're producing the number of teachers we need that are homegrown and who look like our K-12 through 12 students. So we're gonna lean into that work. I, I think it's a, it's a big challenge. It's a critical workforce problem for the state and a cultural diversity challenge for the state. And I think we'll be in that work together for several years to make an impact, but uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and you know, we haven't even talked about industry partnerships, but uh, that's where we are in my short time here in Nevada with uh, leaning into the K-12 challenges and being good stewards and good partners to them.
0: Well, Melody, we want to be sensitive to your time. This has uh, uh, been amazing. You've left us with lots of knowledge gems. We've got two final questions for you. And the first is, um, is there anything else we missed? Anything else you want to say about the Nevada system of higher education and your work there as chancellor? And number two, what does the future of higher education look like?
2: <laughs> wow. Well, th- those aren't small questions. We, well, we um... warm
0: you up with one, and then we give you the really hard one. Right? <laughs>
2: um no, I think we've covered a lot of really great ground. I, I, I guess the the piece that as I suggested a moment ago that we really haven't had a chance to look at is the the connection of higher ed to industry. And that's a place where I'm beginning to spend some time. I think it's really vital that we are partnered with industry to understand not just their current workforce needs but their economic development needs. The uh, Southern Nevada is trying um, very hard, extremely focused, on diversifying its economy because you know, this pandemic hit hard based on our entertainment and hospitality heavy economy. We have one of the highest unemployment rates in the nation as a result. So there's a lot of conversation around diversification, uh, and I want to make sure that we're at the table for that, because we want to help leaders uh, prepare for new industries coming into the state by developing the, the programming that will be necessary to support them. Uh, so that, that's one. And I suppose that also leads to uh, an answer to your second question, which is what will it all look like? Um, we have already talked about the future of the demographics. Our our student population is gonna to continue to grow in terms of our students of color, in terms of underrepresented and first-generation students. I think we need to have a conversation about how to get some of those more mature students who dropped out back into the system, and that's gonna require a lot of strategy. Um, in terms of delivery, I think, We're never gonna go back to the amount of face-to-face classes we had before the pandemic. I think there will be increased appetite for hybrid, high-flex programming. And we need to listen to students, of course, about that. And finally, we haven't talked about this either, but we have to listen to students in terms of, you know, what what are their current needs? Do you really need a two or four-year degree? Or do you need a short term 30 credit quick hit um, retraining to get you right back into the workforce? And then maybe you come back to us later. I'll say, you know, my vision for higher education is that the the folks who come to learn with us don't just come and learn with us once. We, We have historically this kind of quirky thinking that our, that our customers are only customers once. They come, they d- get their degree, they leave, they never come back. And I think the future of work is gonna demand something different from that. I think you're gonna see continuous learning, upskilling, reskilling, kind of dipping in and back out of higher education multiple times across the span of your life. And we wanna be prepared for that and we wanna serve that population.
0: Agree, 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 and agree, especially when you talk about um, curriculum design for the future, for current events, not getting muddled down in old curriculum, I think is one of the, the biggest pieces that higher ed has to, to address. Um, Melody, I love it. You, you speak in the truth, in my mind, um, and I really appreciate you coming on the EdUp Experience. It's been another episode and our guest today, Dr. Melody Rose. She's chancellor of the Nevada, of the Nevada system of higher education, not Nevada. It's Nevada. Uh, Melody, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you both so much. It's been a real treat and you got me fired up. I'm looking forward to the future. Thank you.
0: Watch out. Watch out. Go for it. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Hey everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of The Edup Experience. To learn more about The Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to The Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at The Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.